Coming up on Tech Nation, what's beyond AI and machine learning? It's called decision intelligence. Computer scientist Dr. Lorian Pratt tells us about LINK, how decision intelligence connects data, actions, and outcomes for a better world. Then Dr. Seth Letterman from Tonics Pharmaceuticals tells us how PTSD works, its relation to sleep, and how it may be treated even nine years after the initial trauma. Whether from military service, being a first responder, or now anyone, if you have experienced trauma and PTSD, you may qualify for one of their studies. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. We've all seen little restaurants that were jammed with customers, and then they doubled the space or moved to a larger spot, and before you know it, they fail. In 2014, Stanford professors Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao came together to write Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. I asked them, what happens there? There's a couple of things that happen. One of the first things that comes to mind to me is you've got just sheer cognitive load. In fact, we've got a great example down where we are. Uh, on the peninsula in the Bay Area, there was a restaurant called John Bentley. It was a great restaurant in a place called Woodside, California. He opened the second one, and literally the load of having to keep two places going was more than he could take. So that that's one thing that um, causes— They both failed? No, no. He actually sold one to the employees, and now there's just John Bentley in Redwood City. So that was that was a little bit too much cognitive load. The other thing that happened, which is our um, argument, is that uh, it's one thing to have excellence in one place, but what scaling is for us is— taking scaling from um, excellence from where it is to where it isn't. It, it actually it works for John Bentley's a little bit, too. The excellence didn't quite spread to the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. That idea of sort of multiplication um, is, is part Maybe of Maybe the first Starbucks was really fantastic and none of us knew it. It, it might have been. It might have been. So, so Huggy, what's, what else are your thoughts about this since you've studied these sort of situations? In the, the first uh, interesting challenge is if you're a restaurant, uh, you could argue for some kinds of restaurants, scale is actually the enemy of excellence uh, because the smaller you are uh, and usually the fewer items you have on the menu, the more consistent your quality of execution, and you're also letting customers know, hey, we're exclusive. It's hard to get in here. The moment you scale, you're, of course, saying we're not exclusive, but the difficulty is typically the number of dishes on the menu go up, and if you're trying to execute on all of those fronts, that's tough to do. So you can almost see it coming if you understand what the profile is. When we actually talk about In-N-Out Burger and McDonald's in our book as sort of like a comparison. As you get bigger, the simpler you keep it, the easier it is to replicate. So In-N-Out Burger is a perfect example. But the problem is that as you move into different markets, there's pressure for customization. So that's why there's only In-N-Out Burgers in the United States and, in fact, most of the Western United States. But McDonald's, which are all over the world, they'll have different customization to meet the market. Everybody, if you travel around the world, you, you go into the McDonald's to see what's there. You see you see wine in Portugal. Right, right, right. <laughs> you see fish hot exactly. dogs in Japan. Exactly. It's like I think your discussion of ha- Home Depot going to China totally bears repeating. Most of us in the United States know Home Depot is the definitive do-it-yourself store. So and you can do it. You can do it. And, and they took that model without really any change, opened a dozen stores in a do-it-for-me culture, 
which is which is China, and uh, and they tried to convince the Chinese that really you want to do it yourself, and they went out of business. And uh, you know, one of my uh, really out of, out of business. Out of, there's not a single home. They're all twelve clo- are closed. And Chao Wang, one of my uh, uh, doctoral students, or um, actually master students who grew up um, in China, said so in China. If you're rich enough to shop at Home Depot, you're rich enough to hire somebody to do it for you. Plus, they don't have the culture. And, and the opposing case is IKEA, which is, you know, I actually can't stand buying IKEA furniture. And um, for I don't know about you, but for me, all my personal relationships with my wife, the most trying times have been trying to assemble that stuff. If a screwdriver is there, you might get a divorce. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. But, but, but in China, where it's the do-it-for-me um, culture, they are doing great. And they have delivery services and they have assembly services at a much higher level than the U.S. ones. And that challenge, when you're spreading, is is something. I mean, we see it with little groups where they just will add just three or four more people. How much more do we insist that everybody be exactly a clone, and how much do we allow them to customize for their own preferences? And and, and when it comes to spreading excellence, it's it's a big challenge for the smallest or the largest organization or just a team. This 2014 Tech Nation interview with Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao features their book Scaling Up Excellence. Name to the best business book list of the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Forbes, and the Washington Post. Bob and Huggy are still professors at Stanford, and they're still the best of friends. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, computer scientist Dr. Lorian Pratt will tell us what's beyond AI and machine learning. It's decision intelligence. Her book is Link, How Decision Intelligence Connects Data, Actions, and Outcomes for a Better World. Then former Columbia University professor Dr. Seth Letterman, the CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals, tells us what they've learned about PTSD and whether sourced from military action, being a first responder, or domestic violence, how they are looking to treat it. And now, Dr. Lorian Pratt. Oh, Lorian, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you, Moira. Delighted to be here. Well, we keep hearing about artificial intelligence and machine learning until our ears bleed. <laughs> we are we are just like, no, no. But you're talking about decision intelligence. What's the difference? Decision intelligence, from one point of view, is the future of AI. It turns out AI doesn't solve some of the most important problems we face, specifically the question of how actions we might take lead to outcomes that we care about. Well, you write, technology alone solves only a small subset of the important problems. What are the important problems? I think the most important problems we face are in many ways the same single problem, climate, poverty, women, conflict. As it turns out, these problems are qualitatively different than the kinds of problems we faced before because they're massively interdependent. We can't solve climate without solving water. We can't solve water without solving food. We can't solve food without understanding how to improve the status of women worldwide. 
All of these problems are massively connected through multiple links. And I believe that the reason we haven't solved them is that we need a new way of thinking about technology that really thinks through consciously those multiple links and includes human knowledge about how the world works as well as AI and data. And it's not just the big grand problems and challenges that we face. We make decisions every day. Companies actually have decision intelligence research groups. In fact, Google has a chief decision officer? Yes, Cassie Kosrikoff. Now, what would she do? She has trained 17,000, I think maybe these days it's 20,000 Google engineers in decision intelligence. And again, this is how to systematically think about how actions lead to outcomes, as informed by AI and data like Google has, but going beyond that to really understand the multiple link impact of the decisions that we make. I don't know why I hear my parents' voices in my, you know, my head here saying, you know, didn't you think what was going to happen <laughs> when I was a teenager? Right. But we're talking a larger scope of what are the consequences right. of the decisions you're making. Right. And I think I, I like to use the analogy. It's like maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, as we managed businesses and complex organizations like governments, think of it as a pond with a few fish in it. And uh, we know how to manage that. There's a pretty well-understood ecosystem. Then a storm comes along, and it opens up a river into that pond. And that pond now leads to the ocean. And so salinity and salmon flow upstream. And our ability to manage that situation really needs to be upgraded. We are now massively interconnected economically, through jobs, through economies. And we haven't really learned how to embrace the complex dynamics that when I buy something, you know, I buy a dozen roses today, that's going to have an impact on some company across the planet that may be positive or negative. We don't know how to think through those kinds of long-term, in space and in time, complex multi-link decisions. Both all the aspects of it and then how to think about it and make decisions about it. Almost two different levels. That's right. And, you know, I think the decisions we faced in the past were only a few links and they didn't need to change that often. So really, there's there's a major new challenge that we face, which is that we have these multiple link consequences that ripple out through time and space. So there's really two challenges. One, the decision I make today impacts folks in India and China and all over the world. And the other is it might have an impact that ripples out through time in a way that it hadn't rippled out before. And so we're really faced with this fundamentally new challenge where we need to understand those links, but then also the other piece, the third part of the two parts, is that that situation... <laughs> That's my kind of show. <laughs> I know, right? It might change, right? And so we see a level of volatility in the world that's really unprecedented. And so this is the reason that there really is kind of this driving force that I and the hundreds of people in this book have recognized require a new way of thinking about complexity. You write there's a common pattern to how people describe decisions in complex environments. What's that pattern? So this is really exciting. Just by way of background, when I started this about 10 years ago, I conducted a series of hundreds of interviews, and I asked people if technology could solve one problem for you, what would it solve? And uh, fairly senior people said, there's all this great data, but, you know, we're just still making decisions because the tall, handsome guy in the room is his best story. He gets his way. And the data guys were similarly frustrated. And so I asked the next question. I said, well, so how do you think through those decisions? And there was this incredible epiphany because as I talked to dozens and dozens of people, 
they described their decisions using the same simple set of pieces. Everybody said, well, I'm going to take some action. It'll lead to a thing in some context, and then that will lead to another thing and another thing, and that'll lead to some outcome. And so there's this archetype, this standard way that people think through complex decisions, which is really simple. It's just an actions and then like water. I don't know if it's because we, we were, you know, aqueduct builders in the past, but we think of this water analogy flowing through time going forward as we lead to some outcome we might want to achieve, whether it's world peace or reduction in conflict or just net revenues. One thing leads to another. Pretty much. <laughs> that's, the, that's the bottom line. That's the whole that book. the bottom line? That's that's, the, well, that's you have book. a very small book here, and it's got a lot <laughs> in it. We're not even going to get to all of it. Uh, but it really is thought-provoking, not just finding out about something, but, you know, who you are and how you think. I myself realized that when I was younger, post my parents chastising me for what were you thinking <laughs> but, but just what the world was like until now how I make decisions it's a little more complicated than how I initially made decisions I don't ever recall learning that in school or talking to my parents about it or observing it we humans are making decisions in a more complex way now. Yeah, I think, you know, when people try to be systematic when you and me were kids, they would do the Ben Franklin thing, right? They would list all their choices and then the pros and cons in a couple of columns. And what that systematically leaves out is it makes invisible the process by which those actions lead to the pros or lead to the cons and the context in which those actions lead to the pros or cons. And again, in a volatile situation where your context is changing, I may choose to go to Harvard versus Yale versus Dartmouth. And then six months later, I may learn something new about that university because there's this opportunity to get all of this data. We live in this flux of information. And so things and the information we can use to make great decisions is constantly changing. I have to say that people are picking schools, and I mean this on the graduate level especially, because at that point, it's usually not you and your parents. It's you as an adult. That's um, right. And more and more people are looking for things online, not yes. to go to school online, but what do you have online? What are you speaking to me about online? What yeah. does this mean to go here? Can I resonate with what's there? And the choices are being made online, and I like to say they make you and they break you online. If they go... They said that, but they didn't do anything like that. This is true. This actually reminds me of, of what I think is a classic mistake we make when we don't do good decision modeling. I have a friend who's a professor at a university, and she teaches people how to work with children. And so she's had a very high-touch course for many years. Well, her university decided to take that course online. And the reason, you know, in kind of hindsight thinking about it is because it would save money and perhaps open that course up to a lot more people that would otherwise not be able to take that course. But, oh, my goodness, they really ignored this intangible factor, which is a little hard to measure. And because things are hard to measure, we often don't take them into account in complex environments, which is just how important it was to be hands-on when you're learning how to work with children and working with their emotions and being empathic. The decision was made only using what I would call the hard factors and ignoring the soft factors. And that pattern is everywhere. In complex environments, we kind of narrow ourselves down and we just focus on the things that are easily measurable and that have one or two links of cause and effect. And that's really hurting us in so many domains. You say today we are in a qualitatively new era, mm -hmm. a boundaryless third era 
of human evolution. Okay, what's one and two? (laughs) (laughs) So the first era you can think of as primitive man who didn't really have a lot of information and need to make decisions in the moment, you know, run away from the lion or go uh, harvest a particular piece of food. The next era is where we've been up until now, where we have all kinds of information, whether it's, um, you know, printed uh, text in a book or moving forward in time. Or what time it is. Or what time it is. That's That's right. Relatively new technology. That's relatively new, even to, you know, model things and make decisions based on time. The new era is something fundamentally new um, and that goes beyond science. If you think about what science is and you as as a scientist, you know, it's all about hypothesis testing and creating an intervention and then comparing it to a control group. Think about what the result of a scientific test is. It's a new fact. It's a new piece of information. Turns out that those little facts and isolations, those answers and insights aren't enough. In fact, I get kind of mad when people say our our AI system is so great it gives us all these new insights. Enough with the insights. We have so many insights and so many facts. It's time to take, you know, what I look as all the puzzle pieces, the jigsaw puzzle of insights and facts and information and put them together. And that sounds kind of complicated, but it's not because decisions are really simple. We just need to assemble these facts and insights on a chain from actions we might take to outcomes that we want to achieve, whether we're, you know, you and me helping our kids decide what college to go to or whether we're a massive bank and we're trying to decide how to organize, you know, a half billion dollar project like I was able to help with a few years ago. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Lorian Pratt, a computer scientist. She is the chief scientist of Quantelia, a Silicon Valley firm specializing in applied machine learning and decision intelligence. She's here today with Link, how decision intelligence connects data, actions, and outcomes for a better world. Well, there are those places we get paid for making decisions, and that's on the job. And you write, only 14% of organizations generally follow a formal decision-making methodology. Yes, isn't that amazing? What are the other 86% doing? As you, you were saying, well, the good-looking, the, 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 the good looking, articulate guy with the loud voice. He That's what decisions. we're seeing. So, so you'd be surprised. Often I meet people who believe that as you get more senior in an organization and as the decisions have greater impact, maybe a billion-dollar acquisition or something like that, that of course you're going to get more rigorous and we're going to get more careful. And over the years, as I've interviewed folks at the C-level and close to that in many organizations, it's a big surprise to me. Quite the opposite is true. It turns out that the folks are the most senior, usually the ones who've been around the longest. And so they've gotten promoted using very kind of 20th century techniques, being able to make a good case, to tell a good story, to have a great narrative. They're not so tech savvy. And so their ability to tell that story is often what wins. That might have been fine in 1952, but I'm really sorry to say the world is moving way too fast. And to be competitive and successful, we need to take evidence and be more rigorous and take data into account as we make those very complex decisions. One of my favorite guests, I have a lot of favorite guests, but one of my favorite guests is Dan Rome, who comes on every so often and he talks about how do you draw this? You think about it, you got to, he once did the entire uh, national health plan on a you know eight by ten piece of paper or whatever it was, it was like, how did you do this? It's like I just had to keep drawing until I could see the whole thing. This tendency when you have lots of data, 
words fail. It's just, in a sense, if you're going to make a story, even tell the story, you've got to kind of go visual. Absolutely. And here we are on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes lots of sense. Visually out there, you drivers, keep driving. Yeah, yeah, keep your keep eye driving. on the road. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. And in addition to new ways of integrating technology to solve these complex problems, we have to change in how we think. So if you watch C-SPAN or you look at Congress, they're still standing there with their arms at their sides. If I was to throw my pen at you right now, Moira, you might catch it. And what would happen as you caught it? You're calculating a parabola and a trajectory and, you know, 12 different uh, hinges on your fingers are all figuring out how to catch this pen. That's not just visual, that's spatial, that's analytical, that's moving through time, that's kinesthetic. That's the kind of the brain that we need to start leveraging in order to be super, super smart. So we need to go beyond just the visual. We're already there. and Dan's stuff is fantastic. What we're talking about is actually the next level to get kinesthetic as we simulate things that move forward in time. It kind of tells you why if you write a 440-page report and then you go talk about it in words, 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 <laughs> not a lot of people are going to get it. Yeah, I actually feel like we've hit a complexity ceiling, not just within organizations, but within journalism as a whole. And my challenge is to you and everyone in, in your profession is to start being more visual and to draw these pictures of cause and effect. Some journalists, it's funny, as they talk, I can tell they're sort of unwinding a visual model in their mind, and that's why I like to listen to them. But that's, you know, creating this unnecessary shift in representation. Why don't we use visual media in more visual ways and actually show these simulations? And if I did this, what would happen? Now, you teach people how to do or people learn how to do however you want to put it sure. um, these cdds causation decision diagrams yes. what are they what do they look like so well, people can get a picture in their head um let me start by saying it sounds kind of complicated and when you look at them they look like spaghetti but i just want to really simplify this you can learn how to do a cd i'm going to teach you in the next 30 seconds you can get lots of the value you start by brainstorming your outcomes. Read up on brainstorming. Make sure everybody doesn't get corrected. Just list all the things you might want to achieve and allow that to go on. Allow people to give some crazy ideas. Then brainstorm the actions that you might take. What are all the things we could do? So, you know, maybe I want to achieve net revenue growth in two years. Well, write that down. Maybe at the same time, I want to keep my carbon emissions low and I want to do good for my community. Write that down. Then the actions that you might take, what are all the actions that, that might lead to those outcomes? Again, go into a creative brainstorming mode. One of the big mistakes that we make, turns out all the blood in your head has to slosh back and forth as we go from creative thinking to analytical thinking. And that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly the life science That's probably not the most yeah, technical <laughs> but, but you get the idea. You get the idea. We, we kinda, use, use your whole brain. Yeah, but don't try to use it all at the same time. That sloshing, it turns out, takes effort, that context switch. So you're either brainstorming, listing all the things you might want to achieve or listing all the actions, or you're being analytical. Some people might call that system one and system two thinking as well. That's related to that concept. So be disciplined about when you're being analytical and when you're brainstorming. Once you have that list of actions and once you have that list of outcomes, now you can swap in your analytical brain and say, okay, how does this action lead to this outcome? Well, I might invest in marketing and that might make more people buy my coffee at you know a higher price and 
And at the same time, I might invest in machines that have lower carbon emissions. And so I can make that coffee with fewer carbon emissions. This is a weird example. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? Yeah. And then there's a price and there's a cost. And then I'm going to invest in more in my people. And you can see how that sort of chain of effects plays and, out. And it's as simple as I may want to buy a home and I'm doing this now. And I, ooh, I don't have this, but I could do this. What else could I do? I could do this. And you have your outcomes and your outcomes might be, why do I want to buy a home? And so right. you start to get on. So all kinds of things are free on this list. Yeah. Anything could be on the list. In, in fact, it's a good idea to have some bad ideas on the list because that's what really gets the creative juices <laughs> flowing, especially if you've got – I like to pull together very diverse teams, old and young people, multiple backgrounds, multiple races, multiple genders. That's when it gets really exciting because you get these great ideas flowing. You know what's kind of crazy though? This is so obvious. Right? I mean, I'm just thinking, if you're listening to me, you're thinking, of course, of course you're going to list what your outcomes are. It's not. We are so sort of bamboozled by the data and all of this stuff. I have gone into so many organizations, and I would say nine out of ten, who are talking about the data and the actions and the information sources and the, you know, the graphs and all the stuff, and they haven't taken the time to brainstorm through the outcomes nor to align around them. It's really strange, Maura. And not to mention, what are the consequences of the outcomes? We exactly want to get right. there. They tell you in a, in, a, in a foot race, it's like you don't drive to the line, don't run to the line, you drive through the line. You don't just stop at the line. It's like, wait a minute, if we got that, what would happen? And this gets us to Silicon Valley culture. Okay. <laughs> Which I know you like talking yes. about. I think it's very important. And this is an emerging movement among me and a few hundred people I've been talking to around the valley. Um, that technologists need to own and take more responsibility, at least to understand the consequences of their decisions they take. Like we're seeing some things play out with social media companies that I would have liked to have seen this brainstorming activity happen with an economist in the room and an old person and a young person and a government policy regulator to say, if we build this powerful system and it's looking like it's starting to be really powerful, what do we think those consequences might be that might not quite be what we intend? And how can we anticipate those and take the responsibility for the platform we're creating to make sure that it not just achieves our near-term goals as a company, but also positively affects the environments, both economic as well as jobs and climate in which we sit. And what hits me as well is when you've got a pretty large project in a larger company, one of the biggest problems is getting the whole project to come together. Right. Nobody has a common language this is with right. regard to design. I have you know? so much to say in response to that. So a decision is a designed artifact. As soon as we think about it that way, now all of the world of design, design thinking, quality assurance on design, collaborative design starts to be available to us. So it's, it's really exciting. There are some new terms, and there's one I want to ask you about, democratization. We've got a word here that's a little charged, but it says sure. making technology easier for people to use. Could have put a period there, but it continues saying without taking away their power. What does that mean? So you've had speakers speak um, about the idea of agency. I can't remember who it was sometime in the last few months. What we're seeing is because people are so overwhelmed by technology and information, there's sort of this information overload that's going on right now that uh, we don't have a sense that any action we take has any impact on the world. 
And so one of the main goals we're trying to do here is to re-inject that sense of agency. We're not just pawns in the great machine. We actually have a role to play. In fact, human decision-making, I think, is one of the most, the largest untapped sustainable resources that we have as a species. Why don't we take that seriously? I make 500,000 decisions every day that I'm conscious of, and probably another 20,000 I'm not, as do you. If we could align those decisions better, I think there's nothing we couldn't do. I've been speaking with computer scientist Dr. Lorian Pratt. Her book is Link, How Decision Intelligence Connects Data, Actions, and Outcomes for a Better World. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, progress on the treatment of PTSD. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Lorian Pratt, the chief scientist of Quantelia and the author of Link, How Decision Intelligence Connects Data, Actions, and Outcomes for a Better World. This isn't a perfect method. All we're trying to do is give a little bit more light to these very complex decisions and simply by shining that bright light, we can collaboratively create this diagram and then we can improve it over time. And having not done that, I think that's the source of a lot of unintended consequences. I'd like to follow up on one thing you said earlier. I listened to one of your speakers talking about the hummingbird and the fox, right? And the fox is the guy who's, if I understood it correctly, focusing in lots of detail and cutting problems up into little pieces. And the hummingbird is someone who flits around and sees the big picture. Well, I think the history of scientific thought over the last two millennia has been very fox-like. 
And what that's we're tra- what you're supposed to be. <laughs> you're supposed to focus, be. Focus, focus. You've been trained on foxes. <laughs> but you talked about um, company silos, people who come from different departments. Turns out we have a whack-a-mole problem. I talked to one executive during my interviews who said, you know, I'm meeting all the KPIs at every department, but our company as a whole is doing badly. So What's the, the KPIs? Uh, key, uh, key process indicator. So there that's one go. way that people are trying to, you know, optimize things. So they, they would get things great in customer care. They do great things for their customers. But then... You know, the financial department would have a problem because they're spending too much on their customers. And so we get this kind of whack-a-mole where you have a good impact in one silo and, and that hurts another silo because turns out we're pretty good within independent departments or within independent arenas like water or food or poverty. We've sort of reached a point of diminishing returns. The intelligence, the next level of breakthrough is in the interdependencies, whether you're within it between departments in a large organization or between these realms of human existence like jobs and water and poverty. One key insight, of which you have many, one key insight is the tsunami of data that we have today is matched by a desert of systems that can make good use of that data. That's right. So we don't have the tools yet. That's right. And, and you know, most people talk about how we haven't even analyzed. I think the number, maybe you've heard it, is it 2% of all the data in the world we've only analyzed. But you enough. could take the same data and analyze it 52 different ways. <laughs> so it's not actually the amount of data. <laughs> that's right. But, but that's not the whole picture, right? Just analyzing the data, that's not enough. The question is, what actions do we take? So I think we're sort of at the end of this data obsession here in the Bay Area. I can search any fact. I know. You can search all the facts. But, but you know, there's diminishing returns. Again, how do I assemble these pieces of data in order to make good decisions that solve the great problems? Problems. And this, again, back to Silicon Valley culture, we're some of the smartest people here in the Valley. Why aren't we solving the hardest problems? I think this is the bridge to be able to do that. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Lorian Pratt, a computer scientist. She is the chief scientist of Quantelia, a Silicon Valley firm specializing in applied machine learning and decision intelligence. She's here today with Link, how decision intelligence connects data, actions, and outcomes for a better world. Another key insight is there can be huge benefits from even a simple qualitative diagram where no data has been gathered and the diagram only depends on the expertise of persons in the industry. You mean we don't actually sometimes need all that big data? Yeah, I mean... Uh, what a shame. I know, right? One of the, <laughs> Sorry, people are going to shoot me for that one. One of the consequences of this data obsession is there's this belief that we can't start thinking about our decisions until all the data is cleansed and it's joined and we've got it in a great master database or federated or and something. And we have the data. And we have the data. And they say the decision is only good as the data. No, 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 no. In fact, if you start with the data, you're going to waste a huge amount of time because only 10% of the data has 90% of the decision-making power. And you're going to cleanse 90% of the fields that you don't have to. So you're really, you know, for getting technical, even on an AI project, if we get back to AI, you really need to understand the decision in which that AI is participating, the context. And I know people talk about the age of context. 
I like to be a little more focused than context in general because I know that the decision context is where there's a huge amount of power. So just that chain of events and how that data informs it. And and you know what's funny? You were around back in the AI, uh, the last AI summer, right, in the 80s where we had the fifth <laughs> yes. generation project. It was really going to go someplace. It was going to go somewhere. Nowhere. Well, that was all about human knowledge. Right? We were going to do expert systems. We were going to encode human expertise in systems. It wasn't so much about data. And I'm here to tell you we've pendulum swung, and we've pendulum swung too far. We've gotten so focused on the data that we've ignored the things that human knows, humans know. And, you know, AI may seem kind of cool, but it does not understand cause and effect. It doesn't understand how these systems fit together. There's it no... doesn't understand Wisconsin, Michigan, and wherever the other state was. <laughs> Whatever that was going on. Didn't yeah. know that they're going to get really mad if, if you don't visit them. <laughs> right. And those were intangible factors. So specifically, if there had been more folks going out and asking intangible questions and then building a decision model, I think we would have seen some different results there. Different results, at least different behaviors. At least, whatever yes. the results are. Yeah. Now, of course, everybody today wants to be a data scientist. That's and everybody true. wants degrees in data science, computer science. I hate to tell you this, Lorian, so last millennium. I know, right? So last millennium. Um, are there decision scientists? Uh, what are the jobs going to be? Let me just ask it that way in this whole emerging field. So let me give you a meta answer to that. So again, you and me have gone through the transition from coding to software engineering, right? And so coding was kind of down in the dirt, knowing the technical no, stuff. No architecture, no, no vision, architecture, just keep coding. Right, yeah. no design at all. So you can answer that question in general by just kind of working by analogy. As we built up, um, just, just as in coding, we built this layer of software engineering to make sure our projects were successful and low risk and were finished on time and met the customer's needs, all that great stuff. There is also emerging AI software engineering where um, one of the key roles there is a decision model or the person who has enough of a knowledge of the toolkit of all the technology that could be used to build that decision model and to help people understand how their actions lead to outcomes, but is also pretty good about talking to people as a business consultant about their business problems. And so is like the business analyst that we have within software engineering. So we are seeing an emerging role. In fact, there's a lot of women in this role as decision modelers, people who are both technical and can sort of span that bridge over also to people who you know know what their outcomes are and how they want to try to achieve them. So maybe this is a solution to the pipeline problem. We've just been waiting, you guys, for the last couple decades to get the technology ready. <laughs> now we're ready to help you glue it all together into an integrated framework to handle complex problems in sophisticated environments and solve the problems of the world. A woman to, we're you know, ready just, to go. We're ready to go. Yeah. And anybody who says women, you know, it's like, hey, anybody who doesn't double the available workforce immediately, well, that's a dumb bunny, you know. You got <laughs> we, it. Want, we want to do it. Laurie, it's such a pleasure. So much to talk about. Uh, you accomplished a lot in a short space. And, uh, and as you can see, I have four pages of questions. We didn't get to them all. But uh, I hope you do come back and see us again. Thank you so much, Laura. My guest today is Dr. Lorian Pratt. The book is Link, How Decision Intelligence Connects Data, Actions, and Outcomes for a Better World. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. PTSD. 
post-traumatic stress disorder. It's real, and it can come from trauma in many, many forms. We're learning to treat PTSD in many new ways. Dr. Seth Letterman is an MD and former longtime professor at Columbia University. Today, he is the CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals. Well, Seth, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me. Now, we've always talked about PTSD, and PTSD is actually everywhere, Uh, not just uh, in such places as it was originally found in in veterans coming back post-Vietnam, but in many other places. I know you currently have a treatment in phase three, the very last and largest phase uh, before FDA approval that focused on military veterans, but you learned something in the middle of that. Thank you. The most important thing we learned is that PTSD is a treatable condition. And I think many people did not appreciate that before. And we also learned that it's important to diagnose and treat early. We did two large studies in military-related PTSD, and we learned that treating people within the first nine years is important. That seems to be a stage of the condition where people are treatment responsive, and when treatment can make big changes in their lives. Now, when you say treatment, what kind of treatment are you talking about? Our medicine is called TNX-102SL. And you didn't have a committee for that. You're not allowed at this date until you get to a certain point to name it. So that's what the numbers are about, numbers and letters are about. Right. So it's a long, it's a mouthful. TNX-102SL is a mouthful. But it's a sublingual tablet that goes under the tongue, disintegrates, gets into the bloodstream, and it is taken at bedtime. Our medicine is taken at bedtime every night, and over a period of 12 weeks, we see the improvement in PTSD relative to placebo in our studies. What exactly does it do? Our medicine contains an active ingredient which acts in the brain to improve sleep quality. We think that sleep quality is very different from sleep quantity. Our medicine does not knock you out, doesn't keep you asleep, but it makes the processes that go on during sleep function better. So it's very different from other sleep medicines, which are known as sedatives or hypnotics or narcotics. Ours is not a class related to any of those three, which is very important because our medicine is not associated with any risk of addiction. Why is sleeping so important? Sleep is important for health generally, and that's one of the reasons why we think our medicine has many different potential applications. But in PTSD, sleep is vitally important because PTSD is a disorder of memory processing. And it's well known that memory processing happens during sleep. We don't know a lot about those processes. It's still quite mysterious, but we know that sleep is important for memory processing. So in order to heal from a painful memory, sleep is important because it allows you to take that painful memory and combine it with a new memory. And the new memory might be that was then, 
this is now, that was there, I'm here now, I'm out of danger now. So in order to heal from PTSD, you need to have new learning. There's several important aspects to this. I mean, first of all, the treatment you're talking about isn't going in and fixing something in the body unfixable any other way. It's enabling the body to recover, to use its own facilities to recover. That's exactly right. That's one of the things that it, that gave me confidence about our program early on when we realized that PTSD has the potential to go into remission on its own in some people. But that kind of situation where a condition can spontaneously go into remission is a real opportunity for intervening with medicines because what we're trying to do is to take the small number of people who can remit on their own and make that into a higher proportion of people. And I think that that's a very important concept. Now, the flip side of that is if you wait to be diagnosed or treated for a long period of time, and we're focused on nine years, then the potential for mission really decreases and goes down to a very low level. You might say that after a period of nine or ten years, the brain is scarred. So the goal of, of our treatment and I think uh, hopefully the goal of policy and, and practice will be to encourage early diagnosis and early treatment so that we can really change the trajectory of the lives of people affected with PTSD. And after the nine years, that's what we're thinking about now. But in truth, what we do know is a lot about between the event and nine years. And that's, that's the true focus here. Now, with respect to post-traumatic stress disorder, it occurs to me that one of the characteristics that sufferers may experience is inability to sleep, so that in itself it predicts a lack of healing. Well, that's, a, that's exactly the, the, uh, that's the observation that led us to this treatment. And you might call it a chicken and egg problem that when we came into the field, there was a recognition that people with PTSD sleep badly. And we thought, well, what's the cause and what's the effect? So instead of just considering that to be a symptom of PTSD, we regarded it as something that was a roadblock on the way to recovery. And that if you could normalize this sleeping problem in PTSD people, maybe that could get out of their way and their minds could heal like like the rare people that heal w- without any medicine. There are many people that can be exposed to events which are highly traumatic. First responders, for example, victims of violence. Can we test there as well? Yes. Well, life is hard and modern life is very hard. And modern life also has more issues associated with what's called sleep hygiene than past times. People used to 
be awake when it was light and used to go to sleep when it was dark. And that's not the way that modern people live today. So you have the back the backdrop of a lot of issues with sleep generally. And then also, unfortunately, society is still set up with a lot of traumatic events. So there are auto accidents, assault victims, rape victims, victims of natural disasters. Just thinking about the United States in the past two years, we've had major hurricanes, floods in Houston, fires in Paradise, California. We have terrorist problems, shooting, uh, uh, school shootings. So unfortunately, there are many problems that lead people to the kind of extreme traumatic circumstances that lead them to develop PTSD. Now, we touched on this, but how exactly does it work? Our drug works by interacting with three different receptors in the brain. One is a serotonin receptor called the type 2A receptor. Another is a receptor for adrenaline called the adrenergic alpha-1 receptor. And the third is a histamine receptor called H1. And each one of these is known to be associated with sleep quality. And we believe our drug is particularly effective because it interacts with all three. And the brain is so versatile. It is so complex that if you just block one of these pathways, the brain can figure out a way around it and it can just reroute, you know, those pathological thoughts or pathological processes. But we think that by blocking all three of these, that we really present a united front against these diabolical processes that affect people's ability to recover. So we have adrenaline, Certainly, if adrenaline shoots through your system, you are awake. <laughs> yes, and that's one of the symptoms of, of PTSD is called hypervigilance. And it's famous in, as a symptom in people with military PTSD, particularly if you've seen movies like Hurt Locker or American Sniper, where uh, someone is very activated in, in People call it the fight-or-flight response, the, so very um, revved up. And you might see them uh, typically they, they, they do not like to have people behind them, so they keep their back to the wall. Their eyes are constantly scanning the room, looking for signs of danger, and they have a very exaggerated response to unexpected things that's called the startle response. So the the heightened level of sympathetic or adrenaline-type responses is one of the important symptoms of PTSD. Also shared by people who are victims of assault of every variety. Yes. Coming at people coming at, they never know when it's going to come at them. So you're asleep and some thought, some inkling comes in and triggers that adrenaline and you're awake again. You never truly get to sleep. Yes. Well, that's the, the, the idea that a thought comes into your consciousness that's unwanted is the cardinal feature of PTSD. And in the same way that you would call a burglar in your kitchen an intruder, these thoughts are called intrusive thoughts. So an intrusive thought is something that enters your consciousness that's unwelcome. And for PTSD people, it's typically the same one of several intrusive thoughts. If 
a, a veteran who perhaps was in a mortar attack in a particular location, Iraq or Afghanistan, that episode will come back over and over again. And it can it can trigger, it's called different environmental cues can trigger it or when that thought enters, it kicks off a whole cascade of events that are very unpleasant. At the extreme, it would be called a flashback. An intrusive thought is a memory of a painful experience. So it could be a, for a firefighter, it could be a episode where perhaps a, a colleague was lost during the rescue efforts. And that intrusive thought can be recalled to memory by a number of different triggers. It could be recalled by the smell of a fire, the smell of burning household materials. It could be uh, brought on by just seeing clothing that reminds of the event. So it can be a visual cue, a odor. Any one of the senses can recall some of these uh, painful memories. Now, serotonin was another of the receptors. And of course, we always attribute that to sleep. But what about histamine? What does that have to do with anything? Well, histamine is well known to people who uh, use drugs like diphenhydramine, the trade name is Benadryl, as a sleeping aid. It's not approved for that indication, but it's commonly used off-label. So I should say that I don't, I'm not authorizing or recommending any off-label use, but um, it's, it is uh, commonly used for as a sleep medicine, and it's common experience for people who take Benadryl for its recommended usage that it can make people drowsy. So that is um, that is one of the activities that's known, and and our medicine interacts with the H1 receptor in a way very similar to diphenhydramine. Now switching topics, but actually not switching drugs or dosage levels. You're also testing this as a replacement for non-opioid pain relief. How does that work? Thank you. We are working on fibromyalgia. And fibromyalgia has been a passion of mine for over 30 years. I am a rheumatologist. I was a professor at Columbia in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Rheumatology. And my typical work at Columbia worked on focused on joints and inflammation, but it was really fibromyalgia that was, for me, an introduction to how the brain works and how important the brain is in understanding pain. Fibromyalgia patients experience pain all over their bodies, but there's nothing wrong at the place where they're experiencing pain. And in fibromyalgia, the pain is experienced because there's a thermostat in the brain if you'll allow that analogy. There is. Oh, no. Yeah. A thermostat-like uh, process. <laughs> yeah. In, in the brain, there's a, a, there's a regulatory mechanism in the brain that works on pain the same way a thermostat might control your, the temperature in your house. And in fibromyalgia patients, that process is set incorrectly so that they experience pain from just normal interactions during the day. And we realized that people with fibromyalgia 
feel much better if they can get good quality sleep. So once again, we're using this medicine to improve sleep quality in fibromyalgia patients. And what we've seen in two large studies is that once their sleep improves, their brain and this process, this pain regulation process, seems to improve also. Clearly, there's a lot of trials going on. Uh, one underway is, as you say, all comers, you know, whether it's firefighters, rape victims, you name it. Tell us about that trial. That's like if you've got PTSD, we want to be testing on you. Well, we are very excited to be enrolling patients into the recovery trial. It's a phase three trial. We are recruiting people with either civilian trauma or military trauma. And the only requirement is that the trauma had to have occurred within the past nine years. And we're very proud to be at really the forefront of treating PTSD. This is a terrible problem for civilians and for military reservist veterans, people who experience it. And we believe we're in the lead in terms of bringing forward a medicine that is both useful and also not addictive. How would people find out information about possibly enrolling in that trial? On our website, tonicspharma.com, there is a banner on the homepage that says we are recruiting in this study. And someone could click onto that banner and it will direct them through a series of steps to connect them with one of the sites around the country where patients are being recruited. We have 30 sites around the United States that are recruiting patients to the study. And the, it, would, it will guide them based on their zip code and other things to find out if they're within a reasonable distance from one of the study centers. Well, Dr. Letterman, we appreciate it so much. And uh, we hope you'll come back. Give us the results. Thank you, and thank you for your interest. Dr. Seth Letterman is the CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals. More information is available at tonicspharma.com. That's tonics, T-O-N-I-X, tonicspharma.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell. 
with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.